Well, good morning and uh, congratulations on seven years. That's a wonderful uh, milestone and um, God is blessing. It's, it's, it's exciting to see uh, this number of persons that are here this morning to worship the Lord Jesus, uh, to further the ministry of the gospel and to be a light uh, shining not only in Washington, D.C., uh, but to be a light shining literally all around the world. I noticed when you read your covenant a moment ago, there was a portion there that talked about being involved in the spread of the gospel among the nations, and uh, that is my happy assignment this morning. I love to talk about uh, the Lord Jesus. I love to talk about marriage and family, as we did yesterday, but I really, really, really love to talk about missions. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, we're going to be in the book of Romans, the 15th chapter, Romans chapter 15. David Platt, who is the president of our International Mission Board, says that the book of Romans could be described as a missionary fundraising letter with a very long introduction. And that would not be far from the truth because actually when we get to the 15th chapter where we are this morning, you see that indeed he was laying the foundation for a request from the church at Rome to assist them and help him take the gospel to Spain Whereas at that particular time, there was absolutely zero gospel witness. And we're going to see that out of this, there's basically a theology of missions and a theology of doing the church that is absolutely necessary if we're going to be faithful covenant communities in the place and in the time that God has put us. So let's read from chapter 15, beginning with verse 14 through verse 24. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are, number one, full of goodness, secondly, filled with all knowledge, and thirdly, able to instruct one another. But, and some translations even have the word nevertheless, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now let me stop and make a comment. That's not the best translation. It is the translation that you will find in every single English translation that I've been able to come across, but I would like to make an argument there's a better word that should be placed in its uh, stead. It it is the Greek word ethne. Uh, We get our word ethnic from it, but what's really important is it is the same exact word in the Greek text that appears in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, where Jesus says to us in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the what? Nations. And so I think nations is a much better translation than the word Gentiles for our understanding. Furthermore, he is not talking about nations in terms of governmental or political entities. A missiologist would use the phrase people groups, people groups. He is talking about people groups that are non-Jewish. In other words, he's talking about the rest of the world in addition to the Jewish people group. And so I think that's a better way to get at what he is saying here. So once more in verse 16, by God's grace, he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience, both by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, modern-day Albania, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus, now watch where he's going, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 15, a portion of the great suffering servant of the Lord's song, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This then is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, 
And here's the remarkable statement. Since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. My life was forever changed in July of 2008. Uh, Charlotte and I were in Pattaya, Thailand, where we were ministering among uh, IMB personnel. Uh, Southeastern Seminary has a wonderful missions training program. It's known as the Master of Divinity in International Church Planting, but we simply refer to it as the 2 plus 2 program. You see, you come to Southeastern sensing that God has called you to the international mission field. You spend two years on our campus and then two years on the international mission field. At the end of those four years, you receive your master's degree, and then you're actually eligible for career appointment with our international mission board. So we were there to minister for a couple of weeks, and actually there were several thousand persons there. But while we were there, a group of our two plus two students came to me one day and said, Dr. Aiken, uh, would you like to take us out for dinner one night? And uh, I'm like, well, actually I would, because we had been eating hotel food morning, afternoon, evening, and it was remarkably the same Uh, every single meal that we ate. And so, yes, I was more than willing to get away from the hotel. And they said, believe it or not, Dr. Aiken, there's a hard rock cafe in Pattaya, Thailand, and we want to go there. Uh, We would like to eat cheeseburgers and hamburgers and French fries. And so I said, no problem. We'll take care of it. So I, I rented a van. We loaded up, I don't know, maybe uh, 12, 15 of us. And uh, we made our way over to the Hard Rock Cafe. But just before we got there, you see, we'd gone down the main road in Pattaya. There's a main road that leads into uh, that particular city that's located right there on the ocean. Uh, We'd gone down the main road, and then we took a left uh, where we were headed over to the Hard Rock Cafe, which was alongside of the beach. Uh, As we turned down this other road, suddenly I saw something that I had read about and heard about, uh, but I was completely unprepared for it. You see, suddenly on both sides of the road for at least half a mile, and I am not exaggerating at all, uh, we saw hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes. Most of them were between the ages of 12 and 17. I would later learn from our missionary personnel that, yes, some of them had been kidnapped. Some of them had actually been sold by their mom and dad, and others had been given to these uh, headhunters for the pimps and for the life of a prostitute by deception. You see, they'll send uh, headhunters, most of whom are females, out into the villages, very poor people, and they will look for pretty little girls. And then they will go to the parents, and they will say something like this, let us have your daughter because we oversee a school back in the city. If you will let us have your daughter, we can get her a good education. And she can get a good job. And there might even be the potential of her buying you out and getting you out of this poverty in which you you live and have lived for generations. And so very foolishly and unwittingly, they give their daughters to these headhunters who take them back into the city and enslave them in prostitution, never see those little girls again. I I, I was crushed. I'm still haunted by what I see on that particular occasion. And I begin to ask myself a question. It was just unavoidable. This is so wrong. This this is all so wrong. Who's going to do something about it? I mean, who's actually going to step up to the plate and do something about this unquestionable evil. And I'm not here this morning to uh, denigrate or throw rocks at other persons. The fact of the matter is the Buddhists are not going to do anything about it. It's actually legal in Thailand where 99% of all persons are Buddhists. It is perfectly consistent with their reincarnational worldview way of thinking. If you wind up living the life of a prostitute, you must deserve it from a prior life that indeed was your karma for this life. 
Hinduism basically has the same basic worldview, and so they're not going to really step up and do anything. And even though both Islam and Judaism fundamentally would be opposed to this, they're not motivated like we should be motivated to get involved and to roll up our sleeves, so to speak, and be willing to get in and get down and get dirty to help people who need our assistance. No, the fact of the matter is the only people with a master and the only people with a mandate to do something about something like this is you and me. Because we know intuitively this morning that the answer to that type of situation is the gospel. It is the gospel that will change the hearts of pimps. It is the gospel that will change the heart of men that will prey on little girls like that. It is the gospel that will change the hearts of their parents. It is the gospel that is the only hope of little girls and, in some cases, even little boys in situations like that. And so what I want us to understand this morning is we need to be identified. In fact, we need to be scarred, if you like, with what I call the marks of Great Commission people. Because I believe being faithful to the Great Commission, which, by the way, was the final marching orders given to us by the Lord Jesus before he ascended back into heaven, being marked by the Great Commission is absolutely essential if we're going to be faithful to what he's called us to do and to be until he returns again. So I'm going to walk you through these verses, and I'm going to point out for you six different identifying marks of what I believe a great commission people will look like. Number one, they will keep their focus on the most important thing while still doing many good things. They will keep their focus on the most important thing while still doing many good things. Paul begins by expressing his confidence in the good things that were taking place in the church at Rome, a church, by the way, as of yet he had never yet been to. He says there in verse 14, I myself, he uses an intensive form, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are, and he notes three things. Number one, you're full of goodness, you're doing many good things. Secondly, you're filled with all knowledge. You're a theologically and doctrinally healthy people. And number three, you indeed engage in effective community. You're able to instruct. You're able to admonish one another. So Paul begins by saying, I know that there are good things taking place at the church at Rome. But then here's Paul's point. For those of us who genuinely want to honor Christ, the great dangers in our lives are not the bad. The great dangers in our lives are the good that get in the way of the best. I had the joy of serving on a committee for studying the Southern Baptist Convention a number of years ago. We spent a year just looking at our churches, looking at our entities, looking at our organizations. And you know what we discovered? Southern Baptists do good stuff. We don't do bad stuff. We do good things. But in too many cases, just like too many local churches, we get so busy doing many good things, we neglect the best and the most important things. That's not a new phenomenon because Paul says there in verse 15, but are nevertheless. On some points I have written to you very boldly. Now, don't miss this. By way of reminder, in other words, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. I'm just reminding you of some things that possibly you have forgotten. So I'm writing very boldly by way of reminder. I do so not out of guilt, not out of legalism, but because of the grace given to me by God. That is that we are ministers of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the nations may be an acceptable thing sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, that causes me to want to raise and answer some important questions this morning. How many nations are there? How many nations are unreached? How many nations are unengaged? 
How many people does that actually constitute? Those are really good, important questions for those of us who claim Jesus Christ as our commander-in-chief. Those are good questions for us to ask and to answer. And I've done my research, and so here's what we would discover. We now know, based upon missiological studies, both the Joshua Project and the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention are pretty much united on all these statistics. We now know that there are approximately 11,750 people groups in the world today. That means there are 11,750 different groups that have their own language, They have their own culture. They have their own self-identity. They are their own unique kind of people. 11,750. Here's the big question. How many are unreached? By that I mean how many have either no gospel witness or very limited gospel witness. And amazingly, in the year 2017, With all of our money and all of our resources and all of our technology, there still remains 6,693 unreached people groups constituting 3.1 billion people out of a world population of 7.48 billion people. That means this. There are more than 3 billion people in the world today. Now listen to me. They will be born, they will live, they will die, and if the Bible is true, they will go to hell. And they never even one time heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, not one time. At our seminary, we teach our students there are still places in the world today where we could drop you by parachute or helicopter, you hit the ground, you start walking, you would walk days, you would walk weeks, you would walk months, you would never engage a church, and you would never meet even one single Christian. And I just have to believe that there's something wrong with our priorities when that is still the situation in the year 2017. You see, Carl F.H. Henry, the great Baptist theologian of the prior century, was exactly right when he said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And I love the heart of John Falconer, a missionary who said it this way, I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn out in a land filled with darkness than in a land flooded with light. And so the Bible teaches that a great commission people will keep their focus on the most important things. Yes, we should still do many of the good things that we do, but we must keep our focus on the most important thing. Number two, a great commission people will see the ministry of bringing the nations to Jesus Christ as offerings of worship to the triune God. They will see the ministry of bringing the nations to Jesus Christ as offerings of worship to the triune God. Now, let me give you my thesis before I go into the text. I believe that missions and theology must always be kept together. Missions and theology must always be kept together. You cannot separate them. You cannot give more attention to one than you do the other. No, missions and theology must always be wed like a marriage and kept together. Now, you say, why do you say that? Well, for a number of reasons. Number one, the greatest missionary who ever lived was also the greatest theologian who ever lived. His name was Jesus. Secondly, the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived, was also the greatest Christian theologian who ever lived. His name was Paul. And let me point out something very interesting. Paul was a missionary before he was a theologian. Paul was a missionary before he ever wrote one word of the 13 letters that are attributed to him in our New Testament. So Paul was a missionary theologian, and his theology is missionary theology. 
That's why it doesn't surprise me that when we come to these particular verses, Paul builds a very, very clear argument that what we do is ultimately grounded in the very nature and person of God, that is, the triune God. In fact, let me summarize for you what he's saying in verses 16 through 19. Look at it, then I'll come back. We are called to be ministers of Christ Jesus, there's the Son, to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God, there's the Father, so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable, sanctified by what? The Holy Spirit. So there's the triune God brought together beautifully in that one verse. Christ Jesus ministers of to the nations, priestly service of the gospel of God. There's the Father offering sacrifices that are acceptable, having been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. To say it another way, because of the grace of God given to me by God, the Father, I am a minister of Christ Jesus, the Son, to the nations. And I do so serving as a priest of God's good news. And I serve as a priest in the act of worship so that the offering of not my monies, now he's not opposed to your monies, we're going to see that in just a moment in verse 24, but that the offering of the nations may be acceptable to Christ and offering made acceptable and sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, missions by its very nature is a work of worship. It is started and initiated by God and accomplished by God as well through his son, through the work and through the efforts of believing priests. Now, in recent years, uh, no one has impacted my own thinking and theology in terms of missions more so than John Piper. Uh, John Piper, pastor for many years at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, a very mission-minded pastor written some wonderful works in this, uh, in this area. And Piper makes a very, very famous statement. Some of you will know this. Others will be new to you. But just listen very carefully because these are weighty, wise words. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. Thus, when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. Worship is what abides forever. But then he says, worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It is the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. Thus the goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. Missions indeed begins and ends in worship. Bottom line, you and I in this day and age cannot truly be the worshiping people that God has called us to be without the nations and the Great Commission being front and center in how we think and how we do church. Number three, Great Commission people are a Christ-centered people who boast only in Jesus and not in themselves. They are a Christ-centered people who boast in Jesus and not in themselves. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. And you almost think Paul is going to go on some type of boastful triad, but he doesn't. He says, no, verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience by word and by deed, indeed by the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Holy Spirit from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now here's what I think Paul is simply saying. Paul knew that a Jesus Christ people will be also a great commission people. Paul knew that a Jesus Christ-saturated people will also be a great 
commission people. I think the best uh, person that ever addressed this was another missionary named Henry Martin. Henry Martin was a remarkably gifted man, had a, a, a genius of a mind when it came to languages and linguistics. Uh, he initially went to India, was on his way to Persia, and in God's mysterious providence, God took him at the age of 31. But he was also a prolific journaler. And Henry Martin made this very profound statement in this context. He said this, The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we will become. The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Jesus, the more intensely missionary we will become. And a Great Commission people are a Christ-centered people who boast only in Jesus never in themselves. Number four, a great commission people never lose sight of the centrality and nature of the gospel. A great commission people never lose sight of the centrality and the nature of the gospel. Now, this is a very biblically informed congregation. I know that by virtue of who your teaching pastors are. And so if I were to have come in this morning and said, we're going to play a little Bible trivia, a little Bible trivia, what would you say is the key verse to the book of Romans? And if you know Romans as you ought, you would have said, oh, that's easy, Danny. It's Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I would say, good answer. Though I would also say, I think verse 17 should be added as well. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And basically, the 16 chapters of the book of Romans unwraps for us the nature of the gospel and the implications of the gospel. So there is what the book of Romans is all about. All right, that then begs a question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? Now, again, you may say, goodness gracious, do you not know this congregation? Do you not know our teaching pastors? Do you not know that they have crammed the gospel down our throat week after week after week after week after week? I mean, it, it's just almost, you know, we, we can, listen, I don't make any assumptions about any congregation. Because you say, I, th I think too many people, even in churches like this, are susceptible to it. Too many people, when it comes to the gospel, are kind of like Mark Twain when it came to what is the church. Mark Twain was asked one time, what is the church? And Mark Twain said, well, the church is good people standing in front of good people yelling at them how to be good. Now, that's one of the stupidest things I have ever heard in my entire life. You say, well, I came from Mark Twain. Well, Mark Twain could be an idiot sometimes. I know he was brilliant. I know he was gifted. I know he said all this witty stuff. But sometimes Mark Twain said some really foolish things. And that's one of them because, first of all, the church is not full of good people. The church is full of sinful people who have been redeemed by God's grace. So there's no one of us in here. In fact, if you're here this morning and you think, well, I am a pretty good guy, you're probably lost. Because there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous. There's none who seeks after God. No, we're not good people. Uh, we're sinful people forgiven uh, and forgiven by God's amazing grace through faith in Christ. No, I think too many people get confused about what the gospel is. Several years ago, I was sitting in my office one day, and I got a phone call from a young man named Will Graham. Uh, Will Graham is the grandson of Billy Graham, and he's a graduate of Southeastern Seminary. And so Will called me and said, uh, hey, Dr. Aiken, would you like to meet my granddaddy? I said, let me pray about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd like to meet your granddaddy. I mean, you don't have to pray about something like that, my goodness gracious. So uh, I said, oh, w when do we go? He said, well, it'll take a few weeks to set it up and everything. And he even said at the very last minute it could be canceled uh, because of his health, although this was about, what, honey, eight years ago, seven years ago? It's been a while. It's the year that Ruth died, the year that his wife passed away. But finally it was set up, and we got to go up to uh, Asheville, North Carolina, just outside up Black Mountain, uh, went into his home, sat in his living room, spent two hours with him. And I will tell you what, it was everything I hoped and more. He was so kind, so gracious. I tried to get him to talk about himself. Uh, all he wanted to talk about, Nathan, was Jesus. That's all he wanted to talk about. 
Well, while we were there, I said, Dr. Graham, can I ask you a question? I said, I have heard you say for years that on any given Sunday, you believe 50% of all the persons in a local church building are not saved. 50%. Do you still believe that? And Dr. Graham said to me, no, I don't believe that anymore. I think the number is much higher. And I said, why do you believe that? And he said, because I don't think they understand and I don't think they believed the gospel. So on your seventh anniversary, I would be derelict if I did not go out of my way to make crystal clear once more this morning. And I know you've heard it hundreds of times, but it may be today is the day that the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to your own heart. And then there may be that some of you are here today as guests and visitors, and we're, we're greatly honored that you're here. But you'd say very honestly, well, I'm not a Christian, and you're just talking about this gospel thing. I'm, I'm not really sure what you're talking about. You talk about, you know, being a good person. Are you talking about being baptized? Are you talking about going to church on a regular basis? Are you talking about I stop cussing, and I start paying my taxes, and I'm nice to my neighbors, and I don't kick the dog? And uh, you can kick a cat, but I don't kick the dog. I mean, is that what you're talking about? No, that, that's not what I'm talking about at all. In fact, a few years ago, someone challenged me. They said, hey, Dr. Eckie, why don't you sit down and see if you could do a tweet on the gospel? Now, that's kind of a challenge because you only got 140 characters. But here was my best effort at tweeting uh, the gospel. The gospel is the good news that King Jesus died and paid the full penalty of sin, rose from the dead, and saves all who repent of sin and trust him. And I would argue that's a pretty good tweet of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that King Jesus died and paid the full penalty of sin, rose from the dead, and saves all who repent of sin and put their trust in him. Let me say it another way. This is a bit striking. Uh, at first blush, some of you will be offended by this, and that's okay. That, that's my intent, to at least kind of rattle your cage and, and make you think about this in a new way. The gospel is the good news that God killed his son so that he would not have to kill you. Now, that ought to, at least for some of us, maybe all of us, say, I, 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 I don't really... I didn't like that. I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, let me see if I can make the argument. Now, I realize this morning, if you know your Bible and you know history, you'd be on good grounds to say, well, actually, the people who killed Jesus were the Jewish religious leaders, and they certainly played their hand in it. Or you might say, well, no, actually, they did not have the legal uh, right uh, to put someone to death, so they went to the Romans and Pilate and the Roman government was responsible for the death of Jesus. And again, you would be correct. They certainly played their role in it as well. And then you may even be a bit more spiritual. Say, well, now, Dr. Aiken, I, I know the Bible, and I, I am a Christian, and so I realize that ultimately my sins are the reason that Jesus died. My sins were the cause of his death. And you'd be correct. Your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world were responsible for the death of the Son of God. But when everything is said and done, you listen to me now, Isaiah chapter 53 teaches us it was the will of God to crush him. That's a direct statement from Scripture. It was the will of God to crush him. It was God's will to crush his son in the place of sinners like you and me that he would not have to crush us. I am not taking it too far to say God killed his son so that he would not have to kill you. Let me say it one other way and I'll move on. The gospel is the good news. That the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything. And the person who has everything minus Jesus actually has nothing. The person who has Jesus plus nothing has everything. And the person who has everything minus Jesus has nothing. Let me make that point very clearly. A few years ago, Charlotte and I got to do mission work in Sudan. Uh, we were in South Sudan. 
had a wonderful time. We went there to be a part of a Bible conference, which we saw great things happen there. We also went there to help plant churches, and Charlotte in particular was involved in helping plant a church for a man that we refer to as Pastor Sam. Uh, Sam uh, had been raised in Uganda, and when Sam was a small boy, Sam was out playing on the edge of his village one day, and while he was out playing in the bush, a marauding cultic tribe of warriors came in and literally killed his mother, his father, and all of his siblings. He only escaped because he was out playing in the bush. By God's grace, a Christian family took Sam in, they adopted him, and he came to faith in Christ. And as an older teen at about the age of 19, he sensed God's calling into ministry. So he left Uganda, came to South uh, Sudan, Kajikaji, where there's a little Bible institute, and he was trained there for a couple of years uh, to be a pastor. And then we went out among a particular area where there were a number of villages, and we did evangelism, and we did invitations, and Pastor Sam planted a church that meets under two mango trees where you sit either on a pole or on the ground. When we were leaving, um, we wanted to be a blessing to Sam. And so we uh, got with some of the leadership, and just before we left, we got Sam uh, in the room where we'd been eating, and we gathered around him and laid hands over him, and we prayed on him, over him. And then we said, Sam, we want to be a blessing to you as we prepare to go back home to the States. And so here's what we've done. Uh, We've been blessed by God, and so we've taken enough money to buy you two ox, a plow, and enough seed to plow the land adjacent to the two mango trees where your church is going to be planted. And some of us are at a point in time in our lives where we've been blessed by the Lord to a great extent, and so we've also taken up enough money to buy your tukul. And a tukul is a teepee-looking hut that most of the farmers live in that are there in the southern part of Sudan. Now, If you had gone to the Sudan about six months ago, stay with me here, you could have gone to where Pastor Sam's church is, and you would have met a man that owns a Bible, two sets of clothes, and a pair of sandals, two ox, a plow, and a tukul, and that's it. That is all he owns. But six months later, he doesn't even own that. Because the Civil War fighting in South Sudan has made its way all the way to the south. His tukul has been destroyed. The Bible school where he was trained has been destroyed. The encampment where Charlotte and I stayed has been destroyed. And today, there are more than 750,000 Sudanese refugees in the northwest part of Uganda. That's where Pastor Sam, his wife, and his children are today. So if you met Pastor Sam today, I think he probably still has his Bible. I suspect he has at least one set of clothes. I suspect after that, he has nothing. And yet I would still make the art. By the way, we've been receiving reports back in recent days of revival breaking out in the refugee camps there in Uganda. In fact, I talked to a man named Edward Dima, who is one of the close friends of Pastor Sam, who actually helped train Sam. He wrote me uh, somehow through the Internet, found some connection to get to me, and he said, this is what's going on. I would just ask that you do two things for us. Number one, pray for us, and number two, send Bibles. That's, That's all he asked for. No money. Get me out of here. No Just send Bibles and pray for us because we're planting churches everywhere in the refugee villages of 750,000 people. And I'll make my statement one more time. If you've got everything but you don't have Jesus, you're bankrupt. But if you have Jesus, even if you lose everything else, you have everything you will ever need. Let me quickly move. Number five, Great Commission people see themselves as a missionary people who indeed are committed to getting the gospel to those who've never heard the name of Jesus. A great commission people see themselves as a missionary people who are consumed to get the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. Now, look very quickly at what Paul said in verse 22. This is the reason. What reason, Paul? Well, I had to do ministry 
from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, verse 19. I had to plant churches. I had to appoint pastors. This is the reason, verse 22, why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and I've longed for many years to come see you, I hope to see you, but I'm only going to be passing through on my way to Spain, and you can help me. I'll get to that in just a moment. Now, here's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, I no longer have any work to do in those regions. I can move on. You've got to say with me, hold on, time out, time out. Paul, are you saying that you've planted all the churches that need to be planted in those other places? And Paul would say, I'm not saying that. Well, Paul, are you saying that all the people who need to come to Christ have come to Christ? And Paul again would say, I'm not saying that. Well, then, Paul, what are you saying? And here's what Paul's saying. Now, don't miss this. Don't miss this. Paul is saying there is at least a gospel witness there now. But there are a lot of other places where there's no gospel witness. I'm not going to neglect what I've done there, but I must get to the other places where the gospel is yet to be heard. Now, see, some of you could be sitting here this morning, and you could give me this kind of argument. You say, well, Danny, 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 we're in D.C., D.C. Is, is dark, D.C. is pagan, D.C. needs the gospel. I agree with that. I agree with all of that. Here's the issue, though. You have in D.C. access to the gospel. There are churches everywhere. Gospel churches everywhere. But there are still places around the world today where they have never, ever, ever, ever heard the name of Jesus. And you cannot tell me that, see, here's what happens at my seminary. Students come to Southeastern Seminary. They get bit by the missions bug, which I love that disease. I am trying to spread it as fast and as wide as I can. So they get bit by the missions bug. They decide now that they're not going to go back to Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia or South Carolina or stay in North Carolina. They're going to go to the nations and take the gospel to an unreached people group that's never heard the name of Jesus. So guess what they do? They call their parents, Christian parents, and they will tell them, we're not coming back home to pastor the church down the street or over in the next county or just a mile, uh, an hour away. No, we're not coming back, but rather we're going somewhere else, and this is what's the kicker. Y'all, some of you won't get this yet. Some of you will. We're also going to take the grandkids. You see, kids tend to go with their parents. I think y'all have figured that kind of thing out. Well, if the kids go with the parents, and the parents go live thousands of miles away, that means they're not near the grandparents. And I'm a grandparent, but I've watched some grandparents just get flat out in the flesh and act like pagans and say the dumbest, stupidest, most ridiculous things. And one of the things they'll say is, well, honey, that's, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, so I can speak like this, honey, sweetheart, there are lost people in Georgia. There are a lot of lost people in Georgia. But there are thousands of churches in Georgia. There are thousands of churches in North Carolina. There are thousands of churches in Virginia. There are hundreds of churches in D.C. There are places in the world today where there's no gospel witness. There's not even a missionary. And if the Bible is true, they're on their way to hell without even an opportunity to receive Christ. And Paul is saying to all of us, that must be a priority. That must be on your radar screen. You need to be praying that God will raise up missionaries. You need to be giving that missionaries could go. You need to have people groups that you are intentionally focused on, seeking out and asking God to allow you to be a part in reaching for the cause of Christ. You must be doing that if you're going to be a great commissioned people. Which leads me to my final point. A great commission people see themselves as a missionary people with each one doing their part to see the mission completed. They see themselves as a missionary people with each one doing their part to see the mission completed. You see what Paul says there again in verse 24? I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to what? Be helped on my journey there by you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't want to leave this message, and I'm about through, 
putting you on a guilt trip. That's not my goal. I want to be very clear and very transparent. God doesn't call everybody to go across the ocean to the unreached people groups. He doesn't call everybody to go. In fact, he doesn't call most people to go. I realize that. Now, I think he's probably calling more people than are going. But he doesn't call everybody to go. But let me tell you something. He does call everybody to pray. He does call everybody to give. And he does, Charles Spurgeon said, you're either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, he did not mean by that everybody packs up their bags, sells all their stuff, and makes their way. He, that's not what he meant. What he did mean was every single Christian is to be on mission for Jesus, being engaged in an authentic and viable way in the Great Commission. So let me close two minutes and just ask some questions as I bring things to a conclusion. Do you model Great Commission Christianity uh, before your children and perhaps when you get to my age, your grandchildren? Do you pray that God would call your children and your grandchildren to be international missionaries? I shared this with the men on uh, Friday night. Do you have a mission savings account for your children and your grandkids? I know a lot of folks... They would say, well, I got savings accounts for college. Well, that's fine with me. I don't care. Good. But what about a savings account for their first mission trip? By where you put your money, you basically say what you think is important. That's a fact. Say, did you ever have a college savings account for your kids? No, we didn't have any money. So like y'all, so we didn't have any money, you can't have a savings account. So no, we didn't have a savings account for, for him to go to college. And actually, he didn't have a savings account for them to go to the mission field. You say, why not? Nobody ever brought it to my attention. But it was brought to my attention about five years ago. And so we have a savings account now for our 12 grandkids. We keep adding to it because they keep adding as well. That's fine. Praise God, more grandkids, more money, because I want them on their first mission trip to know that Lottie and Granddaddy stepped up to the plate and provided the bulk of the monies they needed to go. Absolutely. And by the way, I love my grandkids, but I am praying that God would make missionaries out of some of them or all of them. I pray that every day. I, I couldn't imagine anything that would make me more proud than for them to come and say, Granddaddy, I'm going to be a missionary, and I'm going here. I want you to know I'll be in their corner 150%. Do you have the work of the Lord in your will? And you say, we're young. We're not thinking about that yet. Well, you're not too young to be thinking about that you're going to leave your money to something why wouldn't you leave some of it to the work of the lord am i generous even sacrificial in giving to my church and north american and international missions have i adopted a people group internationally and here in north america have i gone on a short-term mission trip just to see how really lost the world is do I pray regularly for the nations? James Fraser was an honor student in engineering at the University of London. He was also an accomplished concert pianist. And upon graduation, he had mapped out an incredible future and career in London. But in his senior year, he was given a little gospel booklet entitled, Do Not Say. He read that booklet, and it so got a hold of him that he did not become an engineer. He did not pursue a career as a concert pianist, but rather he left the comforts of London, went to the Himalaya Mountains of western China to work among the Lisu people group up above 10,000 feet in all those mountain villages. I refer to them, by the way, as the Chinese hillbillies because they're up there in all those mountains in isolated villages. James Frazier would be there for five years and not even have a single convert. In fact, in the biography written by his daughter, she shares that on a number of occasions her father even contemplated suicide. He felt that he was an absolute failure to the cause of Christ, but he stayed, and he persevered. And today, check any missiological organization out you want to, you'll discover that there are more than 300 
thousand Lisu believers today because of the ministry of James Frazier. You say, my goodness, Danny, what in the world did he read that so got a hold of his heart? Here's what he read, and I close. A command has been given, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it must concern us Christians very seriously, for we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked as of course he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we would give. Of one thing I am certain, most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such a good conscience now we will be wholly ashamed of them then. I don't want to be ashamed when I stand before Jesus. I want to say to him, I, to the best of my ability, was obedient to your final marching orders. You see, brothers and sisters, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. It is my prayer for this church as you celebrate your seventh anniversary that you will be the most passionate, great, commission-minded church in all of D.C., and that someday when you stand before God in heaven, you will be utterly, utterly amazed at what God accomplished because of your faithfulness and because of your obedience. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your challenging word. Every time I read these verses, Lord, I am convicted by the fact that I know that I am so easily seduced by being more concerned about what's going on here than what's going on around the world among the nations. And yet, Lord, you are moving mightily in many, many places. The gospel is spreading like wildfire in China. The gospel is moving even in spite of tremendous opposition in India. Lord, it is reported that there is revival breaking out in the underground church in uh, Iran. And Lord, many other places we see incredible advance of the gospel. And yet, Lord, there are still more than 3,000 people groups that do not have an adequate access to the gospel. And Lord, it is my prayer that this wonderful church will decide on its own. We're going to find a group or two or three, and we will make it our project to be used by King Jesus to get the gospel to those people. We will begin by praying. We will also give. And, Lord, we will pray that even in our midst, among our own members and numbers, you might raise up those who would take the gospel to those yet-to-be-reached places. Lord, thank you for that privilege and thank you for that honor. Thank you that you've promised that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be gathered around the throne worshiping the Lord Jesus. Lord, may we be a part then of what you are passionate about and what you're doing. And we ask and pray this all for your great praise and glory and renown. In Jesus' name, amen.